Hey, Jamie, I've got a question for you. What do you want, Tom? Who's on the podcast this coming Friday? Oh, is it someone big? Boy. Is uh, it a big one? Shall I bother listening this week? Yeah. If I was going to say uh, take. And I would say off no, your trousers. No, no. Take. Me out. No, take. Paddy McGuinness. No, take. Take on me. Take that. Wow. Have a little patience. But hang on, presumably you've only, you haven't got all three of them, have you? Presumably you've just got one of them. Buddy, we have all three of them on the podcast. They've released a new album. It's coming out. They're going on tour. They talk about the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, on everything that happened in Take the That. The ins, the outs. And they reveal it all this Friday. Exclusively. On Private Parts. That's a big one. I'm going to listen to that. I think the the book is fantastic. I think just through my own personal experience, I've been doing a lot of therapy. Yeah, <laughs> and then I've yeah. also been reading a lot of books, and you know, a lot of these these chapters are, are jumping out to me. And some of the 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 way you've it's talking about separating guilt and shame and a calm space, and it, it seems very digestible and a genuine. Yeah, no, exactly, and. That was that was a general idea. Actually, I wanted it to be really practical, yeah, and user friendly. Because I think when it comes to mental health and therapy and stuff, I just think there's so much stuff out there, yeah, loads there of stuff, and people get really confused. And when I decided to write the book, what I wanted to do was kind of give people something that they could use practically every day. Ten minutes is nothing, really. Somebody was talking earlier about meditating for an hour every day. And most people struggle with that, yeah. you know, getting an hour into a day. Whereas I think ten minutes, people can do. Totally. which was kind of the idea behind the book and I didn't want it to be too fluffy I didn't want it to be over academic I just wanted it to be regardless of who you are you pick it up and there'd be hopefully something in there that, that would resonate and help 10 minutes I mean I have someone who I've been diagnosed with ADHD twice I don't know if um, I believe necessarily in labels like that or whatever yeah. it'd be interesting to find, to find out what you think about that but concentration and, and, and routine is something that I did genuinely struggle with. Mm. Now, 10 minutes does seem achievable to me. <laughs> to find well, 10 no, minutes. I, yeah, it does well. I mean, I, I, I use it every day, and if I don't use it every day, the quality of my day differs considerably. Amazing. In fact, the other day I didn't. I was rushing out. It was crazy the other day. My dog's poorly at the minute, and I was running around doing stuff, and I didn't do it, and I really noticed a difference, yeah. like a proper difference in my day. I was grumpy and just a bit more irritated and stuff was really winding me up. I was driving around, I was conscious people kept cutting me out and yeah. normally I'm fairly chilled about stuff but on the day I didn't use it, I 
really was bothered by stuff. Totally. And how did and, I get that? Yeah. And I think that's part of the thing. Most of the time, our minds are just on autopilot. You know what I mean? It's just there's a million thoughts going. Have you done at it today? One time. Yeah, I did. Yeah, Feel this good. morning. Yeah, I do. Yeah. We got. We have a thing with um, a whole hour yeah. um, where we kind of encourage um, people to um, spend an hour of the day kind of out of the virtual reality that we live in. Yeah, yeah and, and with and and we kind of encourage stuff like. Well, any kind of a physical activity or something just to check in with yourself and even just picking the book up then one of the first on one of the first few chapters it, it mentions checking in or you actually probably one of the first few pages it is yeah it's a kind of well, it's the first step of the book so the, the book's laid out really clearly as you yeah. know so it's kind of step by step what what do you do in the 10 minutes and when I was kind of devising it, I think checking in sounds like a really stupid thing no, I like to encourage it. people to do but you know you know I meet you today and the first thing you say, oh, how are you doing? And, you know, I ask you, how are you doing? But often we get, we go through the day and we haven't got a clue how we are. Yeah. You know, we're not checking in, we don't know what's going on. I don't think we know how to even name necessarily what we're no, feeling. exactly. You we know, don't have the vocab for it. I was doing an interview recently and there was a whole group of people doing the interview and I said, oh, has anybody checked in today? And nobody, well, I think one person had and the others hadn't. And so nobody really had any idea how they were feeling, what their mood was, whether they were anxious. And I think, well, Just if we right don't in. know how we are, then it's really difficult to function of course. effectively because you do kind of need to know where you you're are. at, really. Do you know what I mean? And I think, so I started off with that. Oh, it's a really good starting point, check in with yourself. Really. Well, I think also that maybe even moves into the conversation surrounding the stigma we still have around, ne well, in inverted commas, negative emotions. Because yeah. I know that a few people I know, if they check in with themselves and it's not, they're not happy with what they find, that's probably more scary than just moving through life. It's a good point, actually. I think a lot of people really struggle with that because even that whole thing about ne the fact that we name them negative and positive emotions yeah, yeah. always really, really interests me because they're human emotions. They're and just emotions. the minute we start calling them positive emotions, then we think they're, oh, they're the ones that we want. You know, yeah. I want to be happy, I want to be peaceful, I want to be excited. But then when the other stuff comes in, you know, anger, you sadness, kind fear. Of we can almost try and push it away. Yeah, and it's like the that's like the worst thing you can do. Of course it is, because the more you push something away, the more you push something down, the stronger it comes back. Mm. And I think a lot of people do that with inverted commas, negative emotions. They try and get rid of them, or they try and beat them down in some way. Whereas I think, well, often with a negative emotion, there's a kind of underlying message of some description. Yeah. You know, if you're angry probably not really that angry really you're probably sad about something but if you don't really start exploring the emotions you never know really 100 percent. that's my take why did you get into psychotherapy it's a good question was there a moment there was actually there was a i started off so my background split i started off i trained to be a nurse originally so half of my career was medical worked with people who were terminally ill most of the time and um Wait, what what was the birth of that that's a big... I did it. You're a hero, I mean. I know, it's a, it's, it was a bizarre transition because at the start of my career, I worked in accident and emergency, so it was kind of fast-paced, really quick. But why, mate, I'm trying to get to the... Uh, why what? did I do it? You, there's a load of people I know who, who are born, <laughs> grow up, and not one point they go, I know what I want to do. I, I literally want to save people's lives. That, that's like in, an incredible know. calling. What? I don't know. I, I, grew up in, I grew up in Belfast, so... Um, they, that was an interest, and I'll talk about that probably later. But I mean, that was an interesting place to grow up, and I grew up in the Troubles, so it was right. kind of all violent and bombs and stuff. And um, so I kind of got really curious about people and anxiety and all of that stuff. And when I look back, I remember thinking, will I be a therapist? And then I thought, oh, that's probably a bit heavy. What will I end up doing? So 
bizarrely, I, I grew up an Irish Catholic, so um, I went off to train to be a priest for a couple right. of years and lived in a monastery, which sounds like the oddest thing in the world, but it was probably the most interesting three years of my life. Like the outfit. Yeah, well, I, yeah, they, you know, at some the black ceremonies they put you in okay, cool. some stuff. I don't but, know how it works. But you but go off to uni and cool. stuff and you do a degree and you do lots of training and different things. And three years in, I thought, you know, celibacy, right. you know, living in a monastery the rest of Not my ideal. life. You know, and I was young, I was like 19 when I joined, so I thought... Is that celibacy crazy. real, for real, though? Oh, yeah, it's proper. It? What, no masturbation, nothing? It's hardcore, you know, it's kind of... Is it? Yeah, well, it's the rule wow. of the Catholic Church. So. Well, you know, sometimes I worry that Dalai Lama's genuinely done that. And he's never ever pleasured himself, and that's why he's so happy. <laughs> that's what I'm confused by. I think there's a there's a point where you go, he's actually just not because you get a bit stressed in it. Or if I you t- know what you're missing, I, I tell you what, I suggest you get him in for the next podcast. I'd love like, to get Dalai Lama in. How legendary that would be. <laughs> no, um, I do actually. I vote, I understand the concept behind it. I think there is a sacredity to the the sacred experience. Is that the right word? Sacred, sacred. The sacredness. The sacredness. Sacredity. Yeah. I just made that yeah. up as well. As Don't words. know what we've got here. To- but anyway, but I suppose it's relevant. To, so, sorry, carry so that's on. Why, so you that's trained as a priest? I started off, did well, I, did, I didn't get ordained, but I did three years of it. And then when I left, it was pretty clear cut. I thought I wanted to work with people. I spent time in a hospice and I thought I'm going to go and train. To be a nurse, did that, qualified, ended up doing A&E almost by accident, but I landed a job, did that really fast pace, really good fun, enjoyed it. But then you burn out quite quickly. It's intense. You know, you're seeing a lot of really heavy stuff all yeah. the time. Oh. But then I thought... I'll do, I kind of want to stay in a, an area, but I wasn't sure what area. And then I thought, I'm going to go into terminal care, so work with people who are terminally ill. And I did that for about seven, eight years. Whoa. And um, loved it, actually. I mean, it was the most, it sounds quite heavy, and, but it wasn't at all, actually. It was probably the best part of my career. I really enjoyed it. I've, I've, I find it quite intriguing, that acceptance or that understanding that life's to pass. You know, when I've, when I, whenever I've, I've, I've briefly been involved in, I, I suppose, gender politics to an extent, and, yeah. and I'm kind of fascinated by specifically the male relationship with emotion <coughs> because of the environment you're, you're brought up in and whatever else. And one of the things I looked into was death bre- deathbed regrets. Because yeah. I was just intrigued, you know, because... Sometimes you're encouraged to live a particular lifestyle or idea, and it's it's very it's, some of it is very material. Yeah. And so I looked up and it you know clarified what I thought. A lot of people were like, "I wish I'd just slowed down a bit." Well, it's one of the chapters in the book is talking about less. You know, you know. I thought when I did this book, I thought, well, I can't leave out that part of my career. Mm. You know, all these lessons that you learn and all this kind of you're with people every day as they're facing their mortality. And it was like a, every day you would come away with something new yeah. or a new awareness or, you know, what I thought was a problem in my life. Suddenly you go home and you think, actually, my problems are really quite in small comparison. comparatively. But mm. I think as well, there was just something about, the, you know, people when they're dying, not everyone, but a lot of people have a wisdom that we don't have because suddenly everything's fast forwarded. Yeah. So they will make decisions and take more risk and worry less about stuff. And um, so in, in terms of doing that work, um, you were kind of helping people with pain management and all the, the usual stuff. But the one thing I didn't feel equipped to do was the psychological stuff. So I'd end up having really difficult conversations with people and I would manage them. But I remember getting to the point where thinking, I don't feel skilled enough to manage the more complex conversations and that then motivated me to go off and train to be a psychotherapist. Were you aware of um, 
your own mental health when you began working in accident and emergency? Not really. I mean, I t- like, what would be <laughs> no, what would no, be no, the no. first? How when were you first aware that you psychotherapy was something that also involved your own experience? You know? Probably not until I started my own therapy. Wow. Um, because as a therapist, you've got to be in, in your own therapy. Yeah. It's kind of part of your your journey, really. But so growing up in Northern Ireland was interesting because you know, you normalise lots of stuff. So I, I thought I was pretty normal and stable and all of that stuff. Then, you know, you grow up, you leave home, you do all of that stuff. Yeah. I did my training. Then I did my therapy training. And I remember one of the first therapy sessions I did, I remember saying to this lady, I thought, oh, this is a bloody waste of time. I don't need therapy. And I remember saying to her, um, I'm not really sure I need to be doing this here, but I've got to do it. And I said, I think I'm pretty together. And she said, okay, why don't we talk about that in a few months and see how you feel about that Trust then. Me. And, and that was really interesting. Pandora's that, box, Yeah, it? no, absolutely. And then suddenly you think, God, I think I've got it all together. And then suddenly realised, of course I didn't have it Man, all together. Trauma. I grew up in Belfast, so of course, there you go. There's yeah. a recipe in itself. And also I had to come out as gay as well, which back then in Northern Ireland was a huge massive thing. Massive thing. Massive, massive thing to come out. And there's almost a grief in that as well because it's like it's yeah. or a, a, a celebration of of years of a, a kind, kind of, of repression. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. What not I'm was saying. not was it's a, re- a release rather. Yeah. yeah, no, it was a kind of repress. So yeah, I started out my own therapy and then suddenly realised yeah I've got a bit of stuff to work on. Wow. Realised actually as well I had never realised I was anxious until I started in therapy. I saw it, but I started, I started, I started, that's quite a mean? thing because you know you can't not worry. Um, I was talking to Rose earlier who grew up in Northern Ireland. I don't think you can grow up in Northern Ireland and not be anxious, particularly mm. if you grew up in the Troubles, because of course it was like... It's a heightened state of awareness. You were, you were heightened the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, literally so the whole literally time. Literally wiring your nervous so system. how can you not? You, then you get into adulthood and then suddenly you're in London and a car backfires and you, you, know, you jump out of your skin. Whoa. And then suddenly I realised, God, yeah, you're programmed to worry. And I, it would have been abnormal not to worry. Yeah. And I learned that about myself and learned that, yeah, I do sometimes worry. Um, Beautiful that you, you, your, your kind of instinctive response was to help. I think you should... Like, I just kind of think, yeah. and I think when you do stuff like this, I mean, my take on it, when I first thought about doing a book, you have various conversations with people and publishers and stuff. And the one thing I, I refused to do and I wouldn't do was I wasn't just going to write a, a book as a professional. You know, and just kind of go with all the titles and stuff because I thought I've got to write it as a human being uh-huh. and be honest so about on. my own stuff. What is your what is what, what are the titles? What letters are you missing off your name? In terms of are you saying that you had? A, you, I have yeah, I've got letters off what have you got? all sorts of letters. What are they? But you know, I don't even talk about come on, man. This is you like know, this, is, this is a world well, I've done a couple of degrees and stuff, and you know, you get letters for your psychotherapy no, training. It's like that's a real that's a real flossing match. But that's I like just, a real what I, letters you got? You know? I don't. You know, it's funny. My parents, when I was growing up, used to talk about people and say, "Oh my God, he's really important. He's got letters after his name." Damn right. And it used to make me laugh, and and suddenly you do get them back. Owen O'Kane, C S. CS5 I don't know what they are you know what's a BSC and an MSC and you get all these a BSC MSC I want to put myself in the book I I wanted you know the professionals one part of it and of course it has to be I think sometimes when you're talking about mental health and well-being of course you want your professional experience to be in it yeah it's got to be important but I think my experience as a therapist in the room with people that the minute you I'm not saying that you reveal everything about yourself but I think the minute somebody in therapy knows that they're in the room with another human being something magical happens because then people start to open up and they start to talk and you start to make progress whereas I think 
and so it's a kind of more robotic process where somebody if I was doing therapy with you and I you just thought it was just this practical you know guy with well, all the things to be therapy you almost have to be human you've got to be and I think you have to be truthful about yourself as well yeah, and you yeah. have to be honest and I thought when I did this I wanted to to be truthful about what's what I your, struggled with what's your um, that's great well that's the real way to build connection isn't it well I hope through so through sharing vulnerabilities I hope so, I hope so. yeah I'm a, very, I'm a firm believer in that. I'm a fir- that's why I think you can do like a four, five, six day retreat and after those days, the people you're with feel like yeah. family. Because you, you, you've Cause sat you've down and, and gone, yeah, it's I feel connected. this, I feel that. Well, even in an interview like this, if you're not honest and you don't give real stuff, well then, it's actually a waste of time. Uh, mate, like, like, I, did this re- I did this retreat called The Bridge. I just want to shout it out because it is um, genuinely a phenomenal experience. And yeah, like we did a lot of, there's a lot of mixture of different um, techniques, therapeutic techniques, and it really confronts those, those aspects of you that you can hide behind. Those, yeah. those, those voices telling you you don't really need to, you know? Like for me, I remember one of the things that was really difficult was accepting praise. Yeah. You know? And it was like, for, I'm quite, you know, I'm quite an exuberant person. Like a lot of people wouldn't question my confidence, but a lot of it I'd say is an overcompensation for like quite a, a yeah. deep fear I've had for a while socially I kind of just go for it I'm performative you know yeah, yeah. and it's interesting because like yeah I've always struggled and it was only through doing that deep work with a group and then I had to sit down I mean there's, there's a lot of build up to this but I had to sit down around you know like essentially 12 people I didn't know and yeah. they had to say nice things and I had to just accept them yeah, and it was tough. like no, really the tough. most yeah. difficult thing yeah. so knowing that you're in front of someone who you can consciously trust rather than unconsciously it took me ages with my therapist to to kind of build that trust up well because it was like a lot of my issues around well I think with, as with everyone it's very, very parental you know yeah, and, yeah. and I think there were occasions where I would I would be unconsciously battling against a, type, a, a, a defense mechanism I'd established as a child, yeah. but and it was, but it was coming between me and my therapist, and I had to. I spent a lot of time having to remind myself that Breaking I'm. It down, yeah. mm. I think it's similar as well when when you do a book and stuff, and people start reading the book. A similar thing happens, doesn't it? They have to find a connection with the writer, and they have to they have to make a decision whether there's truth in this for them yeah. and whether it resonates with them. And I think that that's a real struggle when you're when you're writing a book because it's just you and your computer, really, and you're, you've are you got all this information in your head, but actually you are talking to people yeah. and you're thinking of people you've worked with and you're thinking of the common struggles people have and you're trying to get that out there in a way that people relate to. Yeah. And you're talking there about thinking as well. You know, lots of people do have these really negative thought patterns or negative view in themselves, either self-critical or self-judgmental or self-deprecating. And I see that every day of the week. And I think if you don't tackle that, then you're just kind of battling yourself the whole time. Yeah. So it's kind of one of the things that I included about helping people to manage that part of them. Because often we, we buy into the stuff. The intrusive thoughts. Yeah, the, yeah not even the intrusive, but the kind of Massive automated anxiety. thoughts. You know, the automated kind especially of... In, I mean, especially in London. Yeah. Almost being... Maximizing yourself, I think it's as a, as a. I'm not sure if it's ever been celebrated as like a British. Yeah. Like I'm like one of the things that shocked me most when I went to America was how like, how optimistic people were. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I feel like there's a yeah. in Britain, it's a, there's a, 
it's almost like uh, the offspring of of there being a championing of humility. You know, what I mean, I, I, I think at one point we actually really cherished the humi- like humility in a person. It was seen yeah. as a, a very respected value. Mm. Whereas now, I think it's kind of like mutated into a space where people. Are, are not even acknowledging. Yeah, yeah. No. Do you know what I'm trying to say? No, I do. It's a, when it's like playing it down, now people are just like not even giving themselves space to just be ha- like. How do you, I mean, they, to enjoy the little, the little, pre- like, the little wins they have. You know what I mean? Yeah, You're yeah. allowed to go like, oh mate, I'd actually. Had yeah, a great I did day. well in that though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's classic in Irish culture, actually. I mean, you really? don't, you don't celebrate very much well you do but you, you kind of don't if, if you're, something good happens and you're, you're, you're talking about it that could be seen as bragging or showing yeah, off for real. yeah for real kind of, yeah it's kind of, well certainly the culture I was brought up in it was about like you know you right. kept things a bit private and you didn't you don't mm. want to be a show off or seem to be getting too big for yourself or any of this kind of stuff and I think you're right I think American culture is different whereas here we tend to which isn't which is also flawed of course yeah, in of many course, respects but I think way, yeah. that particularly was like quite a yeah. I remember going in a studio, honestly, it was like a really massive opportunity. And this one, this producer I adored for years and years was like, hey, yo, you guys are so, like, you're so, uh, I made music for a long time yeah, yeah. with my mate Harley, Rizzle Kicks, and, and, and we got this massive opportunity. And I remember this guy was like, yo, I heard your music, man. You guys have got that old school flavor, man. Like, I love you guys. And then I remember was like, I was like, yeah, we're all right. Do you know what I mean? I was, I was like, that's what yeah, I'd say to my mate. He's like, yeah, we're all right. And he genuinely looked quite, Bewildered. Yeah, it wasn't like a thing of like you weren't selling yourself. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Like I wasn't like damn right. We're <laughs> if you, you couldn't find anyone better. But if you think about it, we they they reckon that you've got about sixty to eighty thousand thoughts a day. That's really? the kind of that's how many thoughts we we tend to produce a day. And some of the research out there would say that about seventy to eighty percent are negative in content. Don't say that. It's automated. Well, it's automated. And the problem is that a lot of people don't realise that. And yeah, all the stuff, media, TV, press, magazine, all, all of this stuff. But I think this is kind of largely what I talk about is that the importance of how you segregate remove, it. remove yeah. your, yourself from not buying into the stuff they're not your voices sometimes yeah exactly oh, well they're learned most of it's inherited you know? <sighs> most of my critical voices I learned from growing up do you know what I mean they're not my stuff 100% you're given it do you know ideas what I mean? of what you should be yeah, yeah exactly than that or you how, are. yeah or how you should think or how you should react or behave and stuff so Mate. growing up teaches you that I think that's one thing I'm really enjoying about getting older is that you become much freer because you start to let go of a lot of the kind of the old stuff and I'm kind of really enjoying that as I get older that I'm kind of less I've tied been told, in I've, been, I've heard that's, that's officially the f- fourth time yeah. I've heard that with every decade yeah, it yeah. actually genuinely gets better oh you free up a bit definitely. I know everyone was like I heard someone on the train going mate it's the same to his mate he was going mate trust me your 50s better than your 40s yeah, yeah. and your 40s damn sight better than my 30s yeah, yeah. and my 30s were 100% that's, better than my 20s that's true actually <laughs> and, and true, I was just there as a 27 year old like sweet <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward yeah, to it something to look forward to I reckon my 20s are better than my, my teens head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. 
Think I'm in love with a singer, yeah, but I wanna get richer. Life threw me a bag of lemons. No wonder I'm bitter. NHS. Yeah. Uh, just out of interest, this is obviously something that we are very passionate about mm. with, with I'm Whole. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to try and make some headway in there being more of an emphasis around the importance of mental health. Yeah. I'd say in all divisions. I, I, the other night, the other night, um, unfortunately, my um, my girlfriend was very ill. We went to to A and E, and this this person had a psychotic episode. Well, that was what I'd describe. And the response was I felt was so interesting, you know. I felt it was like it wasn't like they turned to their their team, and, you know, they did understaffed already, but they didn't turn to the team and go, oh, let go and get whoever. And they can come in and, and yeah. work. It was literally they got security through them out. Okay. And I was like, and I thought like, oh man, it'd be so. I wonder if there would ever be a world where there is an, an instant understanding of the difference between. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, somebody who is having the genuine episode and somebody who's a threat who may be a bit drunk. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think I think we're in a better position okay. than we were five, ten years ago. I think, you know. People like yourself here talking about mental health, lots of celebrities talking about mental health. The NHS are working very, you know, I think to be fair, the NHS are working hard to keep mental health on the agenda and to push really hard. I think they do some brilliant work. I think I would be lying and I think anybody would be lying is, you know, of course we need to to keep working harder and of course we need to, to find more resources. But it, it's tricky because for years mental health wasn't talked about. You know, oh, no. was kept away, and people didn't. People didn't. You know, you're talking about psychosis, which is on the more extreme end, but people didn't talk about anxiety. They didn't talk about depression. You know, they they weren't named. Do you think that? You know? Do you think there'll be more? Do you think people will be more engaged generally if we if it, there was more there was more clarity around mental health actually also being physical health. Because I've, I've, I feel a bit bizarre about that separation. Well, like if, you, if you've got a cold or a flu or something, you probably wouldn't think twice about going to your doctor or yeah. getting help. You just wouldn't. Whereas actually, if you have, if you're feeling a bit depressed or a bit anxious or physical. obsession, well, of course it is. They all, they all overlap. You know, yeah. you can't differentiate between physical and mental health. They all impact on each other. But the problem is, I think stigma ways people for a long time thought if if you struggle with any mental health issues that it's about weakness and people worry about losing control and all of that stuff we're actually you know like the one in four statistic i argue that's probably underestimated and everybody i mean i'm not even a huge fan of diagnosis because i think we can all wave our trajectories you know you might have a week when you're a bit more anxious than normal or you might have a week when you're a bit low Mm. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're clinically depressed, but I think we're all on a trajectory. Yeah, I do think that needs to be... And we need to normalise it a bit more. That does need to be... There's always, whenever these pendulums swing, there are always extremes. I do think that there is a a potential for there to be a lack of motivation on a basis you can just label yourself and then the work's done. It's like, you know, um, whereas actually it should be seen as a real great moment for you know the other thing i really want to try and get across with with the campaigning is that i I believe the pain you experience in these scenarios anxiety depression i you know i believe anyway and there is research to back it up you know it's all rooted in something it's rooted in wiring that you that occur at a very young age but i think giving yourself space to actually feel that feel what it is that the trauma that's trapped actually breeds a whole world of, of, of 
of more motivational energy the other side of it. I think you've had a really important point. One of the chapters in 10 to Zen is called The Antics of the Brain. Yeah. And it's really helping people in a really clear cut way understand their brain. Because, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes on there sometimes can feel really abnormal for a lot of people. They, yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. get, they don't understand what's happening. They don't understand the pathways and why they might be responding and reacting. And I think it's like any piece of equipment, once you, it's about like the microphone falling earlier. Yeah. Once you know how to fix it, you've got a technique for, for sorting it out. Yeah. You'll do it. And I think often with kind of mental health issues, people don't understand the mechanism of the mind. And I think that's one of the things that I felt was really important and a really simplistic way to explain that when you're struggling, this is likely what's happening. This is probably what's going on in yeah. your mind. So the book really is, is done in three stages about helping people firstly kind of deactivate that threat system in the mind. So you've got a part of your, part of yeah, your brain. Yeah, I've, I've just listened to something on this. And the amygdala. So you're, it's on the right hand yeah, side yeah, of the yeah. brain. And when it's activated, it's helpful if you need to get out of a room quickly, yeah. which is great. But if your threat system's activated all the time in everyday life, then it just means you've got all these chemicals coming through your Constantly. body that you don't need. So you're going to feel wired and you're going to feel stressed and all of that mm. stuff. So in the book, what I teach people in the first section of the book is hard to slow stuff down. Yeah. Hard to almost deactivate Great. quickly that threat center so that they're not in this heightened state the whole time. Yeah. And then the further, the, the book then moves on to once you've done that and brought things down a few notches, it then teaches people how to manage your thoughts. Mm. and the content of their mind, all the stuff that you were talking about earlier. Because once you learn how to manage it and take it less seriously, then things become a bit easier. Totally. That's my experience. Yeah, you've got to get the toolkit. Yeah. The toolkit to get through life. And and, and, and you know, the emphasis as well is these books are necessary now because as a human race, we are, we are advancing incredibly quickly. More, I think, a little faster than our evolutionary brains and bodies can keep up with so i think it's really important this is you know this part of a a necessary understanding at this point i think mindfulness we're moving towards mindfulness because it's unavoidable at the pace we're we're working yeah of course you know most people are did you do a 10 minute practice because it rhymed with zen or did you i'll tell you how that came about 11 Uh, heaven to no no i was teaching i was was teaching at loads i'd go into big organizations and i would teach them Stress management and mindfulness. <laughs> that was the second book. Take a note. Um, what made me do that was when, when I was teaching it, um, you'd go into these big corporate organisations. It used to make me laugh, actually, and they would be forced to come. Oh, really? And you'd get there and there'd be like 20, 30 people in the room in their suits and their arms would be folded and they'd be really oh, pissed so off tired. that their manager had made them come yeah. to this day. And, they, they, and I would arrive and they wouldn't know what to expect. You know, say this guy's coming to talk about mental health and mindfulness and you'd get there and they'd be really, really um, not engaged, certainly for the first five, 10 minutes. But then interestingly, once you get into it and you made it relevant to them, so I would always start the day by saying, has anyone ever woken up feeling demotivated? Has anyone ever woke up just thinking they can't be bothered? Has anyone ever woke up thinking they've got so many worries on their mind they don't know where to start? Yeah. So when you start asking these questions, it's quite funny, it's like a Christmas tree. You'd almost see like lights in the room because you would start to spot who you targeted and then certainly by about the end of 10 questions, you'd kind of everyone in the room hooked. So I'd say, look, if even one thing I've said has resonated, then you're probably in the right thing. course. So then yeah. people would, and then by the end of the day, they would be, lining up to ask questions. So when I was teaching it, one of the questions I would get all the time is about time. 
I've got a busy life, I've got a couple of kids, I've got a job, um, you know, um, I don't know how I'd fit this into my day. So when I started to train and I started teaching people techniques that were really consolidated, sharp, quick, so that they could fit it into the day. So the technique was 10 minutes a day and I thought, well, I can't really call it 10 minutes a day. I thought about calling it take 10. And then some, some, I thought, what am I trying to achieve? And I thought, well, I'm trying to get people to live in a more Zen-like, not in the Buddhist way, but a more kind of calmer day-to-day living. And I thought, well, what about 10 to Zen? And mm. suddenly that seemed to resonate and people liked it. And, it's wonderful. And it worked. Everyone loves a rhyme. Yeah, and it, you know, I want to ask some questions a little bit about about just I've got these couple of questions that I ask on this podcast yeah. that are, are for all intents and purposes pathetic, but I um, love them because they're, they're they're secretly revealing. I find so I'm gonna hit you with them real quick. First up, what's your favourite colour? Red. Oh, that was quick. Yeah. Why? Don't know actually. I don't know. I even we even thought about this it's bizarrely actually. But so people you know, think people think there's a basic interview question. It's actually real deep. No, I just it's profound. Kinda, no, it's interesting because immediately I thought about the color of a door. A door, a yeah. red door. Yeah, a door. But I'll tell you why. It's because every time I paint my house and stuff, my partner always. I always have this thing about. I'd love a red, you know, like pillar post box red door. Right. I think it's like the coolest color in the world. And we end up always having this argument about you can't have a red door. It just looks stupid. But I do know something about that color that I find. Gee, and you can't think of why. No, but it's just I don't know, I think it's just quite an engaging affirmative life giving color. Life giving. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Red like deep scarlet red. Yeah, it just kinda it says something, doesn't it? You don't forget red, do you? Well, I don't. <laughs> What's your favourite shape? What's my favourite shape? Probably a circle. Of course, thank you. I think the circle's winning in this. It, it's, yeah. the, it's the circle of... You know, well, it's life, really. It's it cliche, isn't. but everything's continuous. And I am whole. You know, we're always just kind of, yeah, we're always on this trajectory and this journey, and it's never really complete. It's infinite, isn't it? Yeah, we're never complete, um, as we want to be. I, I used to have this notion that... You know, I love that expression, getting it together, but actually we're never together. You know, we can be together for a day and then something else happens and, you know, it knocks us out a bit or things change. And I think learning to accept that we're never fully together and that we never fully work it out and there's never fully an answer to everything. I think it was great freedom. Just let that. go of that. You just kind of... Yeah, when you've got Aristotle, he's one of the greatest philosophers of all time, ending his life by saying, all that I know is that I know nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's like, well, all right. <laughs> yeah, there's a good freedom in that. I think I think I'll pretty much give up thinking. About it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there is, yeah, surrender, isn't it? So I've been trying to do. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of convincing to oneself that that you're trying to to get somewhere. I mean, there's a great there's a great notion about, and again, it sounds really really cliched, but I think often I think the more you surrender, is the more happens. You know, I think often we just put so much time and energy let into trying to control outcomes. And, and actually, the, the more you let go, I just think you almost allow space for things to evolve and happen. Yeah. I think even in my own life, I've discovered that, even around my own career and the book and different stuff. When I let go and I just don't get stressed about what's coming next or what will happen, it just evolves and it happens. Yeah. It just it takes care of itself, really. I was wanting to ask you actually a little bit earlier. What do you think has been your best period of, of mental well-being? Has it kind of been... I mean, I think it, 
you, you can have you know you can have periods in your life I remember years ago in my 20s I went off to America and did work on a, a summer camp right and I was working with these kids and um I was I play piano, so I was teaching them. I got a job as a musical director in the summer camp. Love that. So I was teaching these kids. Wait, what what, what time was this? Was before or after A and E? This was before. Oh, cool. So this was just when. In fact, it was just when I left the monastery. Right. And I had this kind of year. You left of, the monastery and yeah, became yeah. a musical director. No, well, I, I, was, I went to music school as a kid. So right. right, right, right so I've got I, it. I'm building the picture. Again. So I went to the summer camp. And um, well, I applied to go as a musical director because I played piano, but I also ticked all of these um, boxes on the form about talents and abilities I had, as you do. You know, you making sure. And so I ticked soccer and stuff. Brilliant. I never played soccer in my life. Brilliant. And I got to this American summer camp and they, they brought all these kids. You were called camp counsellors and you were brought up onto stage. So I said, our music director's from Ireland. So I went up onto stage, talked about I was going to do a show. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So I was a musical director. And by the end of the summer, the kids were going to put on a production. Love it. So I went, did my bit, went and sat down again. A few other guys went up and talked about what they were going to do. And then they said, so we're going to introduce our soccer coach for the season <laughs> um, all the way from Ireland. So I started to look around the room thinking, oh, great, there's somebody else from Ireland here I was over in Boston and I said so can we get Owen back on stage again he's our soccer coach for the summer so I had to get up on stage for about 200 people and talk about being a soccer coach for the season never played soccer in my life Love that. but I ticked it on my form and that was my that's beautiful so I had to get up and I literally I, I didn't even know so what I used to do with the kids was I couldn't tell them I didn't have the guts to tell them I couldn't play soccer so what I used to do was I used to play football with the kids and I used to say right we're going to drop all the rules uh, so we're not going to do offside we're not going to do anything because I didn't bloody I hadn't got <laughs> I didn't know what was offside <sighs> Why um, didn't you just say? So we used just so we had a great time. So that we, is hilarious. So you coached a soccer team, soccer with no with rules, no knowledge. We called it soccer with no rules, and the kids had a great time. I mean, where I when I used to play so, football, that with no rules would lead to just pure violence. No, it didn't. The American kids went for it, but that period was probably one of the happiest periods of my life. Actually, I had a really great summer there, and. I think it was something about it. It was one of my first big trips. I went to, I was working in America. Um, I'd got a bit of time out of Ireland. Um, I didn't feel different. There was a real openness and there was a real freedom of spirit. And I felt like I belonged and I kind of managed to fit in somewhere. And um, yeah, I had a great time, really good time. That was probably my happiest, happiest period. That sounds about that, great. Yeah, yeah. What would you say, what would you say has been your worst period? Well? My most difficult period was probably coming out. Yeah. coming out as gay that was a really massive thing because I didn't pl- well I planned to come out but I didn't when I came out wasn't the time so I, I thought I was probably going to tell my parents in like two three years so I'd come out of the monastery realised okay well I think I need to start telling somebody but I'm not going to do it for two three years and literally I was out of the monastery two you days and not say anything for two I wasn't going to come I wasn't ready it definitely wasn't ready but I told one person at the time and unfortunately they were friends of my brother's wife oh god which is very very odd and within a day my brother contacted me and he said is there something you want to tell me and I said what do you mean and he said oh are you gay and I said oh my god how did you find out so he said you better tell mum and dad he said what did they yes. say they were all right, actually. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, it was just a classic coming out to your par- Irish parents. I mean, it was just, yeah, you, I mean, you could, you could put this on stage. It was so well done because, you know, they went through all of this. All the emotions. Well, I, I kind of said to them, I sat them down and said, I've got something to tell you. 
And my mum went through this list of, um, have you got someone pregnant? Uh, you know, that is the are classic on, one, isn't it, when you say that? Yeah, are you... Have you murdered anyone? Yeah, are you on drugs? Are you having an affair with somebody? I mean, I just left a monastery 24 hours ago, so they were all highly unlikely possibilities, but they, they went through this checklist of, was I a drug dealer? Was I taking drugs? Was, had I got someone pregnant? That I said, no, none of the above. I, I love that. I love that, that there's a reality where you come out as a drug dealer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that's a thing that you would get yeah, it done. Yeah, but I was in a monastery for three years before it. So, I mean, how any of this would have happened is, is beyond me. I mean, that could be a pretty decent place to shot some drugs, man. It, it could yeah, be. Monastery, <laughs> you know I mean, it's like, you guys need to chill a bit. That's all for you. So, and, so anyway, they, they went through their list and, and a bizarre thing had happened the day before. There was a fire in a, I think it was a gay nightclub or something in Dublin. Really? Or something. There was some fire in a gay venue in Dublin. And I remember it was on telly and my mum saying, um, when this headline came on about the, the fire in the gay place in Dublin, my mum saying, God, that's incredible. And I thought, what's she going to say? And she said, um, I thought all gay people lived in America. And I thought, well, she's in for a shock. <laughs> Whoa. So the following day then, I sat them down and they did their list. And All then the gay I, people live in America. Well, that was my mum's thought at the time. God, I thought most gay people. amazing. So then I told them, and so they did their checklist. And at the end, I said, my mum then said, interestingly, she said, everything else, are you? And then the last one said, you're not gay, are you? And I said, actually, I am. That's the last one. And then my dad then said, oh, don't be silly. That's a phase, you know. They, they got their head around it eventually. And you know, it really yeah. made me think actually because it took me a long time coming to grips with it. So it actually would have been wrong for me to expect them to... But inspire. quite seriously though, yeah. for that to be considered your worst period of mental well-being, was, were, were those two years almost debilitating in terms of the repression? I think it was about fear. For me, it was largely about fear and anxiety really because coming out well I talk about shame a lot oh, was underpins I think I do and I think I, I deliberately had a chapter in shame because I think shame underpins everything yeah. not good enough not lovable um, not worthy all of this stuff goes on and a lot of people's narrative and for me it did around you know being gay it was about am I good enough am I a bad person Manly all enough. of that stuff all of that mm. rubbish that you know that went through my head at the time my biggest fear was that if I come out um, but it might have just it, that moment that's okay no will they will people reject me and that was rejection. a big possibility yeah. will they reject me and I mean, that's if terrifying. they do how will I manage that so that was that was a big period for me and plus I hadn't quite worked out in my head well am I bad does you does you know you're a Catholic so well I'm a Catholic but as a Catholic there was a big question mark around that well if you do this you go to hell really and I kind of believed that you oh, know I kind of believed that stuff in my, in my late teens yeah, this is wild like so, that so that was kind of you know there was enough material there to to make that period very very difficult but then when I did come out it was interesting I mean I talk a lot about openness and honesty and truth telling when I was truthful about it just immediately I just felt relief yeah. Because there was nothing to hide anymore. Yeah. And then when I started to see people respond positively and warmly and not reject, and then I started to build up enough evidence that it was all in my head. Yeah. With all these horror stories I told myself, didn't no one rejected me ultimately. No one told me I was bad. Um so for me it's always about a lucky. Just talk to people, just whatever you're struggling with, you know, don't hold it back, get it out there. Oh. Tell, tell your truth, you know. 
Yeah, because it's not—it's not—it's not that scary. It's—it's it's more scary in our heads than, the, than it is when we when we tell it. Yeah, I'm. It listen, is. I'm a true believer in honesty. I think that's the 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 true way to it's living way in to, your truth is the way, the way to go. It is. It's a way but to go. But I will say that <laughs> as I I'd like to say ascend into adulthood, one thing that has been very frustrating is that I feel in some cases you're actually punished for honesty. And I don't, and then, I th- and I think this leads to a kind of space where people f- develop that fear okay. from experience rather than from a projected experience. There's a great expression, and I think it's it's really, really true that if you're honest and you shine light on something, it'll always, you know, you always get a shadow. You yeah, know, light really. always comes with shadow. And if you're truthful about stuff, or you shine light on stuff, there'll always be a there'll be a price tag with it. But I think sometimes you've got to be really brave. I mean, sometimes I have to make decisions or I have to have conversations with people that are not easy. Mm. And there's always a bit of a risk with it. But actually, you know, it always, in the end, the outcome's always favourable. But I think you always have this period in the middle. You know, most people don't like, most people struggle with honesty. Yeah. You know, or, or telling stuff as it is. Because, you know, we all... We, we all we're all very respectable, aren't we? And we kind of give different versions of ourselves. But sometimes when we are honest, it, it's more difficult. But yeah, you know, rarely goes wrong. What would you say? As as I mean, I know it's different. When I ask this, when I ask this question to most people, they haven't written a book on calming yourself down. But <laughs> um, what would you? Yeah, you've just answered it. Really, I was going to ask what you'd what kind of off advice you'd offer to a young person going through. The, the phases and, and their, their um, these these kind of stages of of, of understanding themselves, you know. I, if there's like I, one simple piece of advice, other than buy a book, <laughs> rather than buy the book, I'm not going to do a hard plug in the book. I think, I think for 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 young people in particularly struggling, um, I mean the statistics for young people is is you know it's scary, and I, and I do think. You know, with things as they are at the minute, with kind of social media, press, TV, you know, Brexit, you know, everywhere is uncertainty. If you look at a textbook definition of anxiety, it's an intolerance of uncertainty. Mm. So it's really difficult not to be anxious because we've got uncertainty everywhere. You know, there's a lot. So that's the kind of external stuff. We live in a world where there's a load of, you know, difficult stuff going on a lot of uncertainty and managing that is difficult but it is doable but I think the bigger battles go on internally and I mm. think most of that is about when you when you don't kind of walk comfortably in your own shoes in life mm. so when you kind of start to to be what you think other people want you to be or you start living your life based on other people's values or their truths or whatever it's, it's just a really uncomfortable way to live it's like wearing a pair of shoes that don't fit you properly. It's just not a good way to go through your day. And I think, you know, it's about living, you know, it's about living your life in a way that's right for you. Accepting yourself, whatever that is, you know, because, you know, everyone, I don't know anybody who doesn't carry stuff that they're not comfortable with. Mm. Every human being struggling with something. And I think learning to just accept that. And rather than see difference, this is particularly for people who do see themselves as different in any way, regardless whether that be colour, sexuality, race, religion, it doesn't matter. Um, Your difference doesn't have to, you know, your difference can enrich your life. It doesn't have to be a negative influence in your life. It doesn't have to define who you are and I think a lot of people don't see that with difference they often 
play it out a different way. You know, they become almost victimised by it rather than see it as something worth celebrating. It took me a long time to learn that. It was kind of well into my early 30s before I learned that, that actually mm-hmm. my difference set me apart and it was worth celebrating. It wasn't something... I had to be ashamed of When I was in my early 20s, I had a gay pride in Belfast, and there was about 50 people at it. Now there's about 40,000, 50,000 people Whoa. go to it, and that was only 20 years ago. Um, but I watched it from a side street, you know, in Belfast, because right. I was terrified, terrified that I would be spotted. Terrified, but I was no. terrified that I'd be spotted as different. Being blendy ain't trendy. Absolutely. You probably said that a lot better than I ever would have, but yeah. <laughs> so it's much better coming from you. Um, well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, Likewise. mate. Um, Thank you. It is always good to have a, a, a professional. You know what? The best thing is, is, though, is having you come on from a space of having written the book, but actually finding out the reasons as to why, you, what, you know, the journey that's led you to this point. And Thank you. An advocate of truth on the Whole Truth podcast. Bad Thank boy. You. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Love. Right, everyone. Really appreciate you listening. So make sure that you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast. Powered by Spirit Studios.